If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 571. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by clicking on that McClanahan Academy tab. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, purchase some classes there. You keep the podcast free of charge. Win-win, again, because you get great content out of those classes and you get great free content here. So it's like being a supporting member of the Brian McClanahan Show. Also, you can click on that support tab if you want. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can click on the shop tab. You can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But the best way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe. Let people know you like the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I don't always respond, but I do read them. And I do enjoy your input into the show. So that said, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is Robert E. Lee. Now, I talked about Lee last week. I did the uh, the episode with Richard Gamble on uh, Alan Gelzo and Robert E. Lee, Lee's loyalty. But uh, I, I couldn't get this in because I had some other things already planned. But there was a piece that appeared in Harvard Magazine, and it was written by Laura Fairchild Brody. Now, I'm not sure if she's married into the Brody family, Fawn Brody, Bernard Brody. Um, she's in her 40s, I believe. She lives in Virginia now. She's an English professor, taught at Washington Lee for years. Uh, she's a leftist, a hardcore leftist activist. She's written uh, a couple of books that have been fairly successful, you know, uh, fiction, fictional works. Um, she wrote a little essay about homeschooling because for a year she was a homeschooler, so she knows all about homeschooling uh, after doing it for one year, uh, which I find extremely laughable. But anyways, um, she... Is uh, so she's she's a, a graduate, I believe, from Harvard. Maybe if she didn't attend Harvard, she uh, she attended University of Virginia at one point. She's she's from Washington State. I mean, so she lives in Virginia now, but she's from Washington State. She's not a. Uh, I think she did go to Harvard. I think that's part of her biography. She attended Harvard, and uh, you know, she was around all these empowered women at Harvard, and they became very influential. This is kind of like the story. When you read Augusta Jane Evans Wilson and uh, you read <laughs> St. Elmo, she talks about the blue stockings, right? It's, it's the women that sit around. They're all empowered and they write all this stuff and yet they don't know anything they're talking about. And in this particular case, uh, you can see it. She is a Virginian, quote unquote, but not really a Virginian. She taught in Virginia. She's not really from Virginia. She's an outsider in Virginia and she acts like it. She's a Yankee. And she's trying to tell other Virginians what to think about Robert E. Lee. And she's really blasting Harvard. She's saying, Harvard, where I went, essentially, my alma mater, is the real problem with Robert E. Lee. Because if it wasn't for Harvard, people in America would hate Robert E. Lee. But, you know, in the 19th century, 
it became fashionable to like Lee because people from Harvard said it was fashionable to like Lee. Maybe it was just because Lee was a good example of a of an American. Um, this is we'll, we'll get to that in the piece. So I want to start with this. The new year has arrived, which means the sons of Confederate veterans will soon march down Main Street here in Lexington, Virginia, to celebrate the January birthdays of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Two days later, a much larger Lexington crowd will march down March on Martin Luther King Day, waving American flags alongside rainbow flags and carrying Black Lives Matter matters posters. Dueling parades inaugurate each year in my Shenandoah Valley town, although by 2022, you might have thought things would be different. Look at how she phrased that. So we're going to have this horrible SCV parade and then a larger parade because more Americans are in line with Black Lives Matter and rainbow flags and, and Martin Luther King. And in 2022, we would have thought that first parade would be gone. It would be go- gone the way of the dodo bird, right? It's extinct. These people are just the deplorables. They don't have any teeth. They smell bad. They're awful. Those people would have been gone. So she says, this past year witnessed the removal of Lee statues from Richmond and Charlottesville, while in Lexington, Jackson statue, which long dominated the Virginia Military Institute's parade ground, was relocated to a battlefield museum. Still, some things never change. When the faculty and student executive committee of Lexington's Washington and Lee University petitioned for Lee's removal from the school's name, many alumni fought back, retained the name yard signs sprouted on Lexington lawns while pro-Lee billboards appeared on roadways leading into town. In June, WNL's trustees announced they wouldn't change the name, although Lee Chapel has regained the university chapel title it bore when Lee was president after the Civil War. You can still visit Lee's mausoleum, the Shrine of the South, in the back of the chapel where the marble Lee sleeps on his altar-shaped sarcophagus. So, uh, here she, she is disdainful, right? This is one of the Nimrods that was out there trying to get the Lee name removed from Washington and Lee. Why not take the Washington name off too? The man owned slaves? Why not do that? He was a traitor, according to the definition of the term that you pronounce and you promote around. He was a traitor to Great Britain. Should we celebrate traitors? But he was on our side. Well, wasn't Lee on the side of Virginia in the war? So you're in Virginia. Hmm. That's curious. This makes me wonder if you even know anything you're talking about. She says, whenever I describe life in Lexington to my Harvard classmates, they react as if I'm discussing a Flannery O'Connor story. Lee fandom seems far removed from life in New York, San Francisco, and Boston. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God it's far removed from life in New York, San Francisco. Who wants to live in New York, San Francisco, or Boston unless you're a Yankee idiot? Particularly San Francisco. But New York, Boston? I know there's people that listen to this that are from New York and uh, from Boston. Look, I get it. There's things to love about these places, things to love about New York. I'm sure people have told me all the great nightlife and things, and if you like that stuff, plays and whatnot to do those things. But New York is not some place I want to go or care to visit. I mean, who cares? I don't want to live like New York. I don't want to live like Boston. Okay? I don't want definitely don't want to live like San Francisco. They can keep it in those places. And thank God Lexington's not that way, but yet this idiot wants it to be that way. You see, this is the Yankee mindset. They want to go live in Virginia because it's quaint and nice and pretty, but yet they want to make it like where they're from. But once they do that, they're not going to like it anymore, and they're going to want to have to go ruin somewhere else. They're surprised when I explain how, in the early 20th century, Harvard alumni played an oversized role in making Lee a national hero. In fact, Harvard's place in the 
exaltation of Lee helps explain why many Americans still revere the saint of the South. So she's blasting Harvard. She's just, I mean, figuring out, you know, Harvard, there was a lot of people that went to Harvard that really liked Robert E. Lee. And the chief proponent, of course, is Charles Francis Adams. Adams, the son of the, uh, the one of the descendants of the Adams family, right? John Adams. This is this, And um, John Adams, who really liked Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson's descendants, of course, fought for the Confederacy, by the way. Uh, and Charles Francis Adams, who was... Uh, no friend of the Confederacy, but yet admired Robert E. Lee. She says, In 1928, when the New York Times recognized Lee's birthday by praising his nobility of character, the paper said, quote, Abolition, Massachusetts, had done more than any other northern state to lift the shadows from the fame of Lee. The Times was referring to Charles Francis Adams, Jr., A.B. 1856, L.L.D. 1895, chief proponent of Lee in the North. Adams' vocal admiration for Lee was so well-known by 1907 that Washington and Lee invited him to speak at the centennial celebration of Lee's birthday. This unusual event, in which a former Union officer, great-grandson of U.S. President John Adams, who was also went to Harvard, and member of Harvard's Board of Overseers, stood before Lee's shrine and sang his praises, has been described by some historians as the high-water mark in the reconciliation between North and South. Now, look at the term she used there, this unusual event. It wasn't unusual. 1907, that was not unusual at all. I can point back to another event which took place during the Cleveland administration in Chicago, where you had uh, members, former Confederate generals, former Union generals, in the same place, dedicating a Confederate monument where Camp Douglas was in Chicago to the Confederate dead. In fact, Grover Cleveland was there. So was the American ambassador to Liberia, who was black, by the way. He was there. This wasn't unusual. What's unusual is this nonsense this idiot's promoting today. That's unusual. But what's unusual wasn't this stuff. Americans recognized, hey, you know, Lee fighting, he's a son of a founding father, fighting for the same idea, independence. We may not have agreed with it. They lost. Lee said it's over, and that was it. Then she continues, Adams wasn't the only Harvard alumnus to celebrate Lee's centennial. Then President Theodore Roosevelt, A.B. 1880, praised Lee's serene greatness of soul in his letter to the Committee of Arrangement for Centennial Celebrations. Teddy paved the way for cousin Franklin D. Roosevelt, A.B. 1904, L.L.D. 1929, who asserted in 1936 when unveiling Lee's statue in Dallas, we recognize Robert E. Lee as one of our greatest American Christians and one of our greatest American gentlemen. He was right. It's what we recognize Lee as. But this isn't good enough to Brody because Lee is not that. He's horrible. By the way, Teddy Roosevelt was the guy that was able to get the... Uh, when Cleveland, Cleveland was president, he, he tried to get confiscate Confederate flags back to the South. He couldn't do it. In fact, there was some backlash to that. But Roosevelt was able to do it. You have to understand, Roosevelt's mother was an unreconstructed Georgian woman. This is what she called herself. She hated <laughs> she hated Yankees. Right? And she married, of course, into the Roosevelt family. But she loved Georgia. And, and Roosevelt himself got some of that in his rearing. So he was able to get confiscated Confederate flags returned to the South, where they belonged. Roosevelt was interested in reconciliation. It's one of the only good things about Roosevelt. But in that way, 
He was certainly interested in the well-being of the United States. Real healing. This is what Cleveland was all about in his two terms as president, his two different administrations. Uh, He wanted real healing for America, and so did Teddy Roosevelt in that way. So did William McKinley in many ways in that way. McKinley traveled to the South during the 1896 campaign and made a promise, essentially, look, we're going to reconcile. We're not going to do any of the stuff that's been going on before. We're we're back together. It's a real union. And when you look at the Spanish-American War of 1898, and you look at the propaganda used for that war, and then you look at uh, Birth of a Nation, which came not long after that in film, and you look at how these things are portrayed, right? It's all about shaking hands across the chasm. North and South are back together again. This is all, we're all good, right? And then, of course, World War I was the final reconciliation of those things. It's North and South fighting together again for common cause in this Yankee empire. Same thing in 1898, Spanish-American War was spreading the empire, but we're back together again. We've got Southerners now getting medals of honor during the Spanish-American War. Medal of Honor, by the way, was created by the Union. Uh, it's a Union of War. There wasn't really anything like that for the Confederacy. So you would think that there were no heroic Confederates, but we know that's not the case. Uh, in fact, there are Southerners who were given Medals of Honor during the war, and it's interesting when you read the description of those, you know, why they were given those Medals of Honor. Um, and you see, uh, you know, the, the enemy is, of course, the South and how they describe it. But this, it's interesting how that works out. So Brody says, but although the Roosevelts are Harvard's most famous Lee fans, Charles Adams established the trend. I first learned about Adams' infatuation years ago when reading Thomas Connolly's Birth of a National Hero chapter in The Marble Man, a book that chronicled what Connolly called the cult of Lee. As I read through Connolly's survey of Lee's devotees, I thought, Harvard, Harvard, Harvard. Here was Gamamiel Bradford, 1886, descendant of the Plymouth Colony founder, writing Lee the American, a key biography in Lee's Desouthernizing. And here was Mark Antony DeWolf Howe, AM, 1888, who later became editor of the Harvard Alumni Bulletin, using the pages of the Atlantic Monthly in 1905 to praise the dignity and beauty of the individual life in which the lost cause was chiefly embodied. Here was also Owen Wister of 23, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, buddy, using chivalric myths about Lee and the antebellum South to create the hero in his blockbuster novel of the American West, The Virginia. Now, by the way, let me just back up and look at these people. Lee wasn't ever de-southernized. He was always southern, but as um, people pointed out, even with Jackson, E.L. Godkin did this. They were American in character. They were still southerners, but it was America, this idea of America that had created them. But they were always going to be southerners. They weren't de-southernized. They were just lifted beyond the south to say that this is part of America. It's a very American thing to admire Robert E. Lee. Owen Wister is a Virginian. It's a fantastic book, by the way. You want to read that. And, of course, they made it into a television series. In some ways, if you're watching the, the uh, show, the uh, Paramount show, 1883, it's a modern version of the Virginian in some ways. Uh, the main character is a Confederate veteran, uh, the, the, the uh, father of the daughter, right, is a Confederate veteran going west. They're from Tennessee. They're Confederates. And so in many ways, 
it is the Virginian for modern readers. It's a great story, right? Uh, so, but of course, Brody would hate that. How can you say any of these people were noble? Harvard alumni weren't alone in their romanticization of the Virginians. Even Julia Ward Howe, author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, penned a post-war anthem to Lee, a gallant foeman in the fight, a brother when the fight was o'er. Oh my gosh. I mean, how could she do that? Well, because they all recognize that Lee was great. It's just these idiots nowadays and their mental insanity that they can't see it because they're clouded by ideology. They're clouded by ideology. This is the real problem. When, when, I, I, when people call me a revisionist, I'm not revising anything. I'm actually saying this stuff was right. You're the ones revising. Brody is a revisionist here. Not any of these other people. But Charles Adams' love for Lee surprised me most because I remember how, in the 1980s, Harvard encouraged incoming freshmen to read The Education of Henry Adams. There, Charles's younger brother upheld Lee's son, Rooney, in 1858, it's a quintessential gentlemanly but ignorant Southerner. No one knew enough to know how ignorant he was, how childlike, how helpless before the relative complexity of a school. As an animal, the Southerner seemed to have every advantage, but even as an animal, he steadily lost ground. Yes, this book is very anti-Southern. But uh, that said, and the Adams were pretty despicable people. I don't like the Adams. I'm just going to be frank. I don't like the Adams. I don't like John Quincy Adams. I don't like John Adams. I don't really like Charles Adams. I don't like Henry Adams. I don't like any of them. I think they're a bunch of Yankees. But they're right about some things sometimes. Henry Adams, A.B., 1858, claimed he liked Rooney in the way you might like a golden retriever. He grouped Rooney with his Southern compatriots in a caricature of the Virginians that reads like an attack on Wister's novel. Today, Adams's snooty disparagement of Southerners sounds like the 19th century language used to belittle blacks. Ignorant, childlike animal. Perhaps his words were a reaction against his brother's crush. According to Henry, Lee should have been hanged. It was all the worse that he was a good man and a fine character and acted consci conscientiously. It is, always, it is always the good men who do the most harm in the world. Ironically, both brothers contributed to Lee's fame. Charles by praising Lee, Henry by insulting all Southerners which made them defend their Confederate heroes more avidly. This is true. And uh, what I would say about, uh, I mean, Southerners were under attack, so they're going to defend them, but he calls Lee a good man and a fine character. And it's, I think he was jealous. Look, Henry Adams was jealous. I think a lot of, of Northerners were jealous of Southerners. They didn't get their culture. Henry Adams is a doofus. You want to talk about a spoiled little rich kid, a little rich brat. That's Henry Adams. They couldn't get Southern culture and Southern society, so they called it child life and simple. When I'll dare say that uh, Rooney was probably better liked than Henry Adams. But why did Charles Adams admire Lee? Was it only the effect of a veteran appreciating the enemy commander more than the civilian rabble? Curious, I recently read Adams' speeches and autobiography, a dark window into a fallen patrician and failed railroad executive who critiqued the industrial excesses by idealizing the agrarian South and who deplored the rising tide of European immigration and black advancement. I don't associate with the laborers on my place, Adams wrote in his autobiography. I believe in the equality of men before the law, but social equality, whether for man or child, is altogether another thing. As for racial equality, although Adams led black troops during the Civil War, he wasn't impressed by them. 
Adams told the Washington Lee audience that blacks were distinctly inferior and described emancipation as an unfair confiscation of property. So here it is. The reason he admired Lee is because he was a racist. And he was a xenophobe. That's it. Where Henry Adams wasn't. Henry Adams probably was too, right? So were most Americans but at that time. But this is it. It's, he liked Lee because he saw in them racism and xenophobia. That's the only reason he liked Lee. And that's the only reason to like Lee, according to Brody. Adams felt grateful to Lee for discouraging guerrilla campaigns against Union forces after the surrender of Appomattox. He never acknowledged that Southerners instead conducted their guerrilla campaigns against blacks in the form of post-Reconstruction racial violence, while Northerners turned a blind eye for the sake of reconciliation. They also attacked whites, too. I mean, in fact, most of the people they attacked were white, not black. That's a little... Uh, she's kind of skirting the, the truth there. Uh, and I've, I've often asked the question, you know, you're military ocu militarily occupied. You lost the right to vote. You've lost everything. What are you going to do? You're just going to sit down and take it? No, you're going to fight back. These are, these are people that had just gone through a war, and they're armed, and they know, and they're not going to take that stuff. They were told they were going to be readmitted to the Union. Then they were disfranchised, and this is what they, they're going to fight back against this. In their mind, they're seeing people that shouldn't have the vote have the vote and able to do things they can't do. So there's going to be a natural reaction to it. Just as former slaves, when they were franchised, and then they lost that, they're going to fight against that too. It's natural, right? The Union did all this. They created these armed camps. They created Union Leagues, which go around burning barns and other things. They created this stuff, right? So you do that, you're going to have natural reaction to it. The closing pages of Adams' autobiography gush with pleasure about his speech's reception at Washington Lee, remembered as an occasion of pure gratification. It was very satisfactory. It was a happy reunion of the old Massachusetts and Virginia elite, reminiscent of the good old days when the Adams family and the Virginians dominated the American presidency. Before the expansion of the franchise, the working-class white men brought the populist Andrew Jackson to power and made Adams' grandfather a one-term president. Ultimately, Adams followed the path of aristocrats defeated by the modern age, he became president of the Massachusetts Historical Association and spent his retirement romanticizing the feudal past. The feudal past. In his 1902 Phi Beta Kappa address at the University of Chicago, shall Cromwell have a statue? Adams compared Lee to the great English nobleman of the feudal period or the ideal head of the Scotch clan. We now know where this nostalgia for clans, when combined with racist dogma, led. By the 1920s, Harvard had its own clan fans, as documented in the Crimson. Right, so here it is. It's the Klan. He's just a Klansman. It's a huge stretch. That's almost like stretching across the Grand Canyon there to make that, that conclusion. Just stupid. This piece is his absolute drivel. But Harvard also had an alumnus who wrote an impressive rebuttal to Lee's admirers. In 1928, W.B. Du Bois, A.B., 1890, Ph.D., 1895, founded the NAACP, was so disgusted with the New York Times' praise of Lee that he used the NAACP magazine, The Crisis, to publish a four-paragraph critique. Four paragraphs. <laughs> I mean, four paragraphs. That's, that's profound. I mean, forget a guy that spoke for over an hour about Lee. Let's listen to four paragraphs. Forget books written about Lee. Let's just go to four paragraphs. Again, a couple of weeks ago, I had the, the uh, piece by Helen Andrews. I mean, she just took down Du Bois. It was so good. 
But yet, Brody thinks Du Bois is somebody we should all listen to. Du Bois' criticism of Lee fans contains an indictment of our current society. Their fathers in the past have condoned lynching and mob violence, just as today they acquiesce in the disfranchisement of educated and worthy black citizens, provide wretchedly and inadequate public schools for Negro children, and endorse a public treatment of sickness, poverty, and crime with disgraces civilization. Now, was he talking about Southern society there or Northern society? Because, you know, um, by the way, Boston wasn't integrated until the 1970s, long after it was in the South. And then uh, the concluding paragraph or sentence is just absolutely hilarious. This January, as we face another year of the new feudalism spawned by income inequality and systemic racism, Du Bois's words challenge us, maybe challenge us all. Maybe they challenge you. They don't challenge me at all. They might challenge your small mind, your stupidity, but not me. No, shut up. You want to take down Lee? No, shut up. You want to change Lee's name? No, shut up. Go back to teaching English. Probably don't do that very well either, but just go back to doing that. Oh, editor's note, by the way. Readers may also be interested in Elizabeth Samet's Vita portrait of Ulysses S. Grant published in 2000. Yes! Yes. See, Grant is a great American. Great American who slaughtered Indians and drank too much <laughs> and owned slaves. Grant, the great... But he was on the right side of history because he was for the Union and he was for Reconstruction when he really wasn't. But that doesn't matter. I mean, and he wasn't for corruption, but he really was. Uh, that doesn't matter. See, Grant is the right side, Lee's the wrong side. But this is the, this we're getting a false dichotomy here, right? Lee is far superior to Grant. Everybody recognized that for a, for decades. But Grant, now because he's on the right side of things, he's oh we got our praise Grant here, praise Grant. I remember when I was an undergraduate, I I, I was mentioning something about Republicans and. Uh, this guy, his uh, fellow history student, said, well, what about Grant? He's terrible. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, his point was, you know, Republican presidents are terrible. Grant's terrible. Now, this guy was on the left. Today, he probably be singing Grant's praises all day. I don't know. I don't remember the guy's name anymore. But this is what will be happening today. So her biography is Laura Fairchild Brody is a visiting associate. She graduated in 86 from Harvard. Is a visiting associate professor of English at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, where she teaches 19th and 20th century literature and creative writing. I'm sure it's fascinating. She is the author of several books, including Breaking Out, VMI, and The Coming of Women. This is She went to Virginia and then wrote this book, right? She wanted to be a rabble-rouser. She wanted to stir the pot. This is a Yankee acting like a Yankee. And this is exactly what we got. Okay. So I found this piece to be completely stupid, but also fun for a podcast episode, and I wanted to cover it. So hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 